a Podcast One production. Hi, this is Charles Fairley. Welcome back to Unsung Business Heroes, where we talk to small business owners that have got a lot to contribute. Today we're hearing from Andre Alfonso, who runs Ariel Australia, as well as a separate business in India called Forum. Andre suffered a heart attack episode, not once but twice, and in this episode he describes his near-death experience and the impact that had on him in taking him into the life of being a vegan. Andre has a business helping people with leadership and presentation skills, so he shares some real gems here with how to inspire people and amplify their presence in the business world. Sit back and have a listen to Andre. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. So born in a middle-class family, pretty, pretty, pretty privileged life uh, in Calcutta. So my parents figured that the best thing they could do was to put me into the best school that they could find, which happened to be in the Himalayas. Uh, so at seven years old, I was marched off to school, and I still remember to this day you know, waving to my parents on the steam train, which takes two days, the Darjeeling Mail takes two days to get up to Darjeeling. Wow. Right? And not realizing that I'm not gonna be home for nine months of the year. Sure. And, uh, and you know, having to deal with that at seven was pretty, pretty interesting. But then, when I got to the boarding school, it was great, you know, I kind of f- fell into that lifestyle pretty quickly. At seven, you adapt really fast. And then at the age of 12, my parents decided that uh, we were immigrating to Australia. So I was plucked out of that and put into a suburban high school in Sydney. Why did you folks come to Sydney? We were part of a a community called the Anglo-Indian community, which was the the remnants of the British Raj that had sort of intermarried. And it was very clear in India that we were not welcome anymore. So yes, so it was, there was a, a, a really strong push to move people out. Because, you know, Anglo-Indians, we eat with knives and forks, we dress Western, English is our mother tongue. Sure. And there was a bit of arrogance about us as well. You know, in, in hindsight, looking back at it, very arrogant, mm. because we always thought we were superior, and we no. weren't, we were just not any other people. But anyway, Anglo-Indians yeah. were kind of shunned. Yes. And my parents decided we had to come over here. So you came to Sydney and went to the Morris Brothers? Morris Brothers, North Sydney, it was a great school. Um, uh, but, you know, in 1970, I was the only brown kid in a totally white school. So you can imagine how much fun it was in the playground. Not much. Not much. Um, And there were a bunch of idiots who decided that, you know, it would enhance their masculinity to push me around. And and that kind of really, really, you know, affected me. Sure. uh, The bullying. Uh, And he, he sort of learned that the way to survive is to become invisible. And I tried to do that for a while. And then when I was 15 or so, I kind of figured that. It's not my DNA to be invisible. Right. Screw this. So I'm going to do something about it. And uh, and the way I did it was through music and decided to play guitar and be a rock star and, <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. And I did for a while. I joined a friend of myself, put a band together. And we played very loud rock music. Wow. And that was a cool thing to do then, right? Because you could get girls and sure. all that sort of stuff. Fantastic. And it was like, Whoa, this is, this is okay. And I kind of starting to fit in. Every boy's dream. Every boy's dream. But I had to work and I started working and I realized that uh, I was actually better at business than I was as a guitarist. The first job was at uh, the water board. I was a junior clerk straight out of school. And uh, that's how I started my career. And it went from strength to strength. And uh, I ended up after many different corporate 
organizations becoming managing director of uh, an international consulting firm uh, in my 40s. And um, that was with David Solomon? That was with David Solomon. Yeah. Which was fantastic. It was, uh, I never ever thought I'd get to that level, right, of being a, uh, an MD of a company. No, but there was still something missing. Okay. Uh, so I s decided that uh, midlife crisis, so the second big shift for me in, in terms of what defines me, but it was, was forum. And uh, what happened was I didn't know where to go. I was at the top of the tree. What do you do? You know, what do you actually do here? And I've always, always wanted to be an entrepreneur. You know, I think it's do something for myself rather than somebody else. So I decided that I was going to go and open up a company in India. So Kathy, my wife, and myself, uh, and, our, and two of our daughters packed up, shipped ourselves over to India, wow. put everything at risk really? that we had yeah. to set up a business over there because it just seemed like a good thing to do. That was my intuition sure. telling me that this was what to do. And this was in 2008, in the middle of the start oh, of the GFC. GFC yeah. Uh, and that so was in training and leadership? That was in training and leadership. So we opened a forum in India, but as my own business, yep. not as part of a corporate organization. Oh, I see. And that still runs today. So well, the idea was to go there for three to five years, set it up, put a team together, and then come back here, put our kids through school. And that's what happened. But a big risk because, especially with the GFC, that's, that's I guess, a luxury item in yeah. terms of training and expense for a corporation. That's one of the first things they delete off the budget. It was. India was still sort of inoculated from the GFC because it okay. was still in a growth phase. Right. And that was part of it. But the hardest part was also have a son and two daughters. Sure. Who we had to leave behind because they were already wrapped up and stuff. So, uh, so that was tough. Yeah. So we did that and it was an amazing adventure of a lifetime, right? Yeah. It was like so much, so cool. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of learning for me from that. And, and probably the, the, the biggest thing I've learned is, you know, one is follow your intuition. Uh, yeah. rather than follow facts and data because there's that sort of stuff. Yeah. But the other thing was, you know, I think Bill Gates said, mm -hmm. you know, we always overestimate what we can do in one year and underestimate what we do in three. Right. right. And I think there's so much truth to that because a lot of businesses, a lot of people go into business and after the first year, it's things not working, they, they jump. It takes three to five years to actually sure. figure that out. Yeah. Um, and, and that was... Uh, that was uh, amazing because it, we, we got it working and running and now it still runs. And I came back here and started up Ariel, which is the company that I'm now running in Australia with Scott. Right. And Scott was one of your employees? Scott was one of my, uh, he was my sales manager in, uh, in Forum in Australia. Right. And I spoke to Scott and he said you were pretty driven and passionate about what you do? Yeah. I guess I always have been, but I think I've amped that up a lot in the last few years. See. As I was saying, I almost uh, died. A simple procedure uh, yes. to put a stent in to, to one of my arteries went seriously wrong. And I went from uh, totally awake, went into, into critical. Wow. And this was at 42? No, no, this was this is just recently, three years ago. Three years ago. Yeah. Oh, goodness. And um, what happened then was they came to me, and I remember the nurse saying, my blood pressure dropped because I was internal bleeding, my blood pressure dropped and they were uh -huh. trying to keep me alive. And I thought, goodness, is this it? Is this it for me? You know, is this the end of everything? And uh, they were screaming at me, they were running, pushing stuff into me, injecting me with stuff. Mm. Goodness. Um, and I think that was the turnaround for me. So yeah. after that, 
I kind of made a decision, not at that moment, of course, sure. but soon after, yes. that I was going to do something in my life. I was going to do something about my health. I was going to live till I was 90, at least. So what and have you changed? Well, first of all, I decided I was going to reverse my heart disease. Yep. And, I, and I did a whole lot of research on it because no one I'd known has ever tried to do that. Um, so there are four things you need to do in terms of reversing heart disease, right? The first is you've got to be on a zero-fat vegan diet. So not just vegan, but no oil, cooking, nothing. Ah, okay. okay. Um, the second thing is you need to deal with stress through meditation, which I do. Yeah. The third thing is exercise, of course, but not too strenuous, but regular. And the fourth thing is to surround yourself with love. Ah. Right. No yeah. tension, no angst. Wow. So, so basically that's my mantra and, and what I've been doing. And out of that, just trying to reverse my heart disease, the unconscious spin-off or consequence for that was I have this amazing bloody energy to go and do stuff, right? And, and, and driven. So when you come close to death and you're knocking on death's door, sure. uh, you, you think that you know, my mortality is just so close. Sure, it's a big I want to do stuff. I'm not done yet with this world. I want to do stuff. Mm. So that's created a lot of urgency in me. And that's translated from that incident three years ago. So I'm, 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 if, if Scott said, if Kathy said I'm driven, it's because of that. I've got so much I want to achieve and do, not just with the business, but personally with my kids and friendships and stuff like that. Sure. So I'm constantly... Drive, yeah, moving and driving and mm. learning. And it's a renaissance of learning that I'm going through. I'm learning so much stuff, uh, yep. and and going for whatever comes my way, you know. So well, that must have been very scary when you were at death's door. It it was. I don't think I was scared. I wouldn't put scared as an emotion. Right. It was shock. Right. More than scared. It was like this isn't happening to me. This yeah. couldn't be possible. Yeah. Uh, but you had smoked and. Not since 42 when I had the, okay. uh, the first heart attack. Right. Yeah, and I, but I didn't do anything to reverse it. I just went through my normal life. I mean, I watched what I ate and kind yeah. of, you know, dabbled, dabbled and, you know, stuff like that. But, you know, it Still was... smoking it, at least. It, the doctors, he said, oh, I've got the tablets. You know, doctors actually said, you're fine. Go away, live a normal life. Take these tablets and everything's okay. And it wasn't okay. And then wow. I decided, well, that's, that's not happening. So why were you shocked then that you were at death's door? Because it was... Didn't expect it. Possibility. Did not expect that to yeah. happen, right? And, and a couple of things. One is I was going through a routine process and it went wrong. With the stent? With the stent. The stent is an hour in and you're out the same day. You know, there's no, there's no big deal about it. How long were you in hospital with that? Uh, the stent, with, with the sense, I was in for two weeks. Two weeks? Yeah, wow. Because they couldn't find whether I was losing blood. Because what happened is when they, they gave me the, uh, the thing to dissolve the clot, it opened up another, uh, an ab uh, it opened up some bleeding in my abdomen, which they didn't uh. know, and I was losing blood very rapidly. My blood pressure was dropping and I was almost in a coma. Wow. So that's why they were trying to save me and yeah. they had my bed tilted upside down. They were slapping me to try and get my blood pressure up. Really? It was pretty amazing. There was, they hit code blue, so they had, the, the people who keep you alive around and right. screaming at you and sure. don't go to sleep, cough, cough. And right. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty dramatic at the time. Goodness. <laughs> and who was running the business and all that while you were in there? What was Scott? The... Yep. Scott was doing that. Yeah. So we run Ariel in Australia. So what we are trying to do as an organization is to get 
people, professionals, to show up full of self-belief using high-end communication skills to influence and inspire people. That's what we're trying to do. And we use acting as the metaphor for that. So our programs and the work we do, which is corporate training, is all born from the theatre. And the methodology we use is all from that. So our programs are run by professional actors who have to also have a business background and also need to be amazing coaches and facilitators in the room. And that's what makes our work so so good, uh, along with the design of the of the aerial work and the arc of the work we do over there. So every time we have a program, people walk away. There's always one transformation that kind of happens, uh, you know, in that group, and people say, "This is this is amazing." Sure. So it's about leadership and storytelling and engaging with the people's. It's leadership and storytelling. It's how you show up. It's 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 for leaders who are trying to inspire their team better or, or their people. It's for salespeople who are trying to influence their customers. It's for subject matter experts who are trying to get their ideas listened to. It's for women in organizations to get their voices out there and, and again claim their value. And anyone really who wants to be who wants to show up with with impact. That's that's what it is. So it's it's quite broad in its appeal. But that's what makes it so exciting because there's so much depth to it. And we talk about these simple techniques uh, that we use, but if you look underneath the surface, it sits with authenticity of the human being. Why do you think that's so important to you, the presence thing? Is it because of your, when you were a child? Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, you know, being able to claim your value, being able to show up with all that confidence and self-belief, mm-hmm. you know, because when you're when you're getting pushed around school and stuff like that, you know, your self-belief kind of goes down the toilet. Sure. Uh, and, and reclaiming that is, is really important. Yeah. So I think getting up, and I guess I always wanted to be a rock star, and I never quite made it, mm-hmm. and doing keynote speeches is pretty close. You get applause at the end, usually, yeah. right? Yeah. Which is, uh, and you can talk to hundreds of, you know, thousands of people, which is as close as I'm ever going to get to being a rock star. So I think there's that appeal to it at the base level. Sure. But at, at the high level, it's about... I've had to learn a lot to be able to get up and do that mm. about who I am as a human being and how I show up. So the learning for me and just doing these keynotes has been huge, huge. And that's only happened in the last two years. Okay, so the presence element can be learned. Absolutely, presence is absolutely learned. Every one of us can amplify our presence. What's the main way of doing that? Is it to engage with people through that storytelling concept? Storytelling is just one of the elements. Mm -hmm. There's four fundamental things we look at. The first one is being present in the room. You and me right here, right now. I'm not thinking about what's happening later, what what happened on the way over here. It's what's happening in the next next 10 seconds. You know, Curtly Beal actually talked about it at the end of the Waratahs, the thing they're trained right now in the Waratahs, the next 10 seconds, the next 10 seconds. And that's what it means to be present. The second thing is about empathy and how we listen to people which is the whole idea of, of, uh, of reaching out, not just waiting for people, but reaching out and connecting with people authentically. Yep. The third thing is about how you express yourself with 240 volts, using your voice, your, 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 your body, as well as your words, to get that message out, that congruent message out. And storytelling fits in as a part of that. Sure. And the third thing is about self-knowing, which is the authenticity piece. Fourth the thing. fourth thing yeah. is self-knowing, which is the authenticity piece, which is about 
how do you show up as the real you? Right. You know, how do you show up as a real you, knowing what you do? And accepting all of the screw-ups and mistakes you made in your life, because what we found uh, in our work, and, and, and I find in the work, is when people talk about the adversities they've faced and the mistakes they've made, they're much more inspirational than the good things they've done. When people okay. say, you know, uh, Richard Branson went from here to here, yeah, that's interesting. But, you know, it's Richard Branson being dyslexic is whatever it is. I don't know what the story is with sure. Richard Branson. But, but it's, the, it's the adversity that people face which makes it. I mean, Steve Jobs, you know, his Stanford speech is three stories. Right. Three stories. I'm a, you know, the first one is uh, I was adopted. The second one is I was fired from the company I created. Hmm. The third one is I've been diagnosed with a terrible disease. Yeah, wow. That's inspiration. And I think when people are authentic with themselves and they reach down into those challenges they've had in their lives, that's when their power comes out. Yeah. That's when that growth mindset or whatever. So that's, the, the, that's what we do. And in India, so the India business as well is the same thing. You know, we, we have this amazing team of people over there trying and, and probably the biggest growth, one of the biggest growth markets in the world right now doing similar things to what we're doing with Ariel over here is that high-end communication skills, people claiming their value, but just using a different channel, if you like, to make that happen, which is Forum India. So in terms of the, the bullying episodes at school in the Himalayas and when you came to Sydney, rather worse than, than the Indian experience, obviously, what, what was it you learned from that and what did you take away from it that, that now plays into what you're doing today, do you think, Andre? Yeah, I was never ever going to put myself in a position of being bullied again. I just wasn't going to let it happen anymore. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I, you know, I had to get down and build that from, uh, you know, with twenty twenty hindsight, it's easy to see. But in the moment, it was just I'm just not going to let that happen. I'm going to be the cool kid. I'm going to be the guy who's, who's you know, popular, who's likable, and I work really hard towards being that, yeah, that likable guy. That lots of friends, lots of people that came that way. So that was from school. And I, I think I realized with my first girlfriend, because I always thought I was this Indian guy that no, he was not good enough. You know, who'd want to go out with an Indian guy when all these surfy dudes are on you? And my first girlfriend was, uh, was going out with me. And you know, that sort of started that issue of self-belief. Sure. And, I, and I realized that I am enough. You know, I am good enough. I'm Absolutely. not crap. I'm not, I am good enough. And, and uh, it, it's driven me to, constantly all my life to be that. That's one of the reasons I I think I do what I do, is that whole incidence of being bullied is to prove constantly that I'm good enough. To this day, by the way, that I'm good enough. And even if I go to a meeting or I'm sending a proposal out, it's got to be better than anything else. If I do a a speech, it's got to be better than anybody else I've seen. So I'm constantly pushing myself to be uh, amazing because I'm not going to let that anybody to turn around and criticise me again. Sure. You, you pushed your body though, and that ended up in uh, disastrous outcomes, didn't it? What did you change after that health scare in your belief and value system that's impacted you still today? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. When I was lying there in hospital, mm. when it was all happening, uh, a lot of my friends were coming to me and saying, okay, it's time to take, do things, take life easy now. You know, think about retirement. Think about what you're going to do uh, so you don't have to work. Uh, you know, I was 57 when that happened. And I went to a school reunion 
uh, Mara's brothers, which is, um, and a lot of the guys on the table sitting around there were talking about retirement and what they were looking at. And I just couldn't think of anything worse because if I love what I do, why would I ever want to retire? And everything I think when I look at retirement is a slippery slope towards death, right? So there was a, a reignition in me to say that I want to live the second half of my life where I'm making a huge contribution to mankind and to my family and everybody else. So I went from, you know, they say your first half of your life is about accumulation and the second half is about a, a contribution. And I, I'm definitely there. So I'm, and, and, you know, I'm the, probably the smartest I've ever been, the most experience I've ever gotten, the most wisdom I've ever had. Sure. Why do I turn the volume down on it right now? I'm gonna turn the volume up. Good question. Right? And, and that's what I'm doing. So right now, I'm turning the volume up and doing as much as I can to get heard, to, to push myself, push everybody else. And there's an urgency now because, you know, death came knocking. Sure, sure. And in terms of giving back, how do you see yourself in that space? Um, there's a number of things that I'm looking at. I mean, I do a lot of pro bono kind of work for people. You know, I, I'm, I'm an executive coach as well as a keynote speaker. Mm -hmm. uh, so I do charge for some of the stuff, but I also do a lot of people come to me and say, hey, can you help me with this? And I do. So small business owners, uh, stuff like that. So I do some of that. But I do have this desire to do a lot more. And the idea is to do something in education because that's where I come from. That's my thing. Sure. Uh, and to do it somewhere in the world where people desperately need it. The fact that India is the land of my birth, I kind of think that that's where it's needed most. Sure. Uh, you know, we've already won life's lottery by being born in this country. Sure. Uh, if you go and experience that, which is what we did for five years, you know, we still do, uh, that, that's where my, my focus is going to go. So I'm always going to be involved in India and in some way giving back over there, as much as I do over here, but over there as well, particularly over there because people there really need it. Yeah. And someone you admire in business that you look up to maybe, that you respect? There's a whole lot of people in my life that have sort of come and been guides and teachers, but David Solomons is, is one. Uh, he asked me to come and run his company and then he taught me how to be a businessman. Sure. Um, that was a big les lesson learned for me. You know, I've learned a lot from him. He's nothing like me as a person. He's so different, um, but absolutely. And to this day, I still learn a lot from talking to him. Okay, so if you had to give some advice to business owners out there today? Yeah, so the three bits of advice I would give to business owners based on my experiences in life uh, stand out for me really clearly. The first one is grit is more important than intelligence. And what I mean by that is resilience to keep going. As business owners, we constantly get knocked down. We constantly come up against hurdles. And I've seen way too many people give up too quickly. I'd say three to five years, if you're going into business, is a sort of window you've got to look at, not one year, because one year you're going to walk, right? So that's the first thing, be resilient. The second thing I've learned is follow your intuition. In this digital world we live in where we have access to so much information, uh, we downplay and, and, and discount our intuition. And I think it's so important. We start with intuition and then wash the data over it and then you have a choice to make. If you start with the data, no idea will ever live. It'll be shot down before you even start. And I think that's what you need to do. And the third thing is if you stay still, you will die. You've got to keep moving. 
you've got to keep moving. And that means you've got to look at how do you get better at what you do? How do you get your organization better? How do you get your business better? Everything about everything you do has got to be improved to what you did last time or last week or five minutes ago. I think that in itself is one of the secret recipes of success. Fantastic. I hope you enjoyed our chat and got some really great tips both for business and for life. Don't forget to have a look at unsungbusinessheroes.com.au and check out all our videos on YouTube. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. All these stories are available in our second book, Unsung Business Heroes, which is available right now. And if you'd like to get a free notification every time there's a new Unsung Business Heroes episode, just hit the subscribe button. Unsung Business Heroes was presented by me, Charles Fairley, in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search for Unsung Business Heroes on iTunes.